0: I hope everybody is well. Good news through the weeks. Some praises that we can be thankful for. I hope in your life that God has brought praises to you that you could be praising him for. If not, we have his love that we can praise him for. And that's what we'll look at today. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and pray and then we'll we'll look at this marvelous, matchless love that is absolutely magnificent. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can come into your presence, Lord, and we thank you that we can come as your blood-bought people, ransomed by your Son, redeemed by His blood. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Him and your choice of us. Father, thank you for your magnificent love which you shower upon us every day. Thank you, Lord, that your love never changes for us and is always the same. Father, I praise you that we are a loved people and we don't have to worry about not being loved. So, Father, today I just pray that you would come and that you would accompany the preaching of your word Father, I pray you would convict us where we need to be convicted. I pray that you would be praised for who you are. I pray as we come to the communion table that we would see Christ in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty on the cross as he bears the awesome weight of our sin for our salvation. And that as we Take the bread and we drink the cup, Father, that he would be the only thing that is on our minds and in our hearts. Do this for us today, Lord, so that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. So I was thinking about art, right? We have museums all around that we go to. We got the famous one, the Louvre which has many Rembrandts and has the famous Mona Lisa that people go and look at. We have in Italy, in the Vatican, we have this masterpiece of a ceiling that was painted. It's a fresco actually, which is the art of applying wet paint to plaster. It's a total difficult medium to paint in, and yet we have this tremendous fresco that goes the distance of the Sistine Chapel that was painted by Michelangelo. And then on the back wall we have this brush strokes of brilliance of the Last Judgment we have. And then not only is Michelangelo a painter, but if you journey through the Vatican you will see the Pieta of Mary holding the body of Jesus. And yet if you journey to Florence you will see his David. So we see these brushworks of brilliance. We see this artwork that is magnificent from the Mona Lisa to Dolly's Melting Clocks to Van Gogh's Starry Night. We see these brush strokes and we look at these paintings and we see brilliance. And I hope that is what you have seen as we open up the museum of God's word, that you have seen these beautiful brushstrokes and these magnificent portraits of who God is. As he opens our eyes to the beauty of his brilliance. And today we will look at another another painting of who he is, or if we've just been looking at one painting in different facets of the character of God and the attributes of God, we will look at his love today. So in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle writes in verse 4, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So this is the description of love that we see that is that is uh, quoted at, at weddings and, and it's a love that we are to have for each other. But brothers and sisters, I want us to know that this is the description of love, how God perfectly loves you and I. We can substitute in here that this is the love that Jesus has for us, that Jesus' love is patient and it is kind and it does not envy or boast. This is the perfect, undefiled, pure love of Jesus for you and I that we are to emulate for each other. But where does this love come from? It's got to have a source, and that source is God himself. So we have some definitions of love that I want us to look at first. The Hebrew definition of love that, that is the, 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 the big one, The big one. there's different definitions, but is the word chesed. It's so where we get our word loving kindness in the, in the, in the uh, Hebrew language in the Old Testament. And this said is a love that intervenes on behalf of a loved one, comes to the rescue. said is not a romantic, infatuation kind of love. It is a faithful, reliable love, loyal, committed love, wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God, of God, of God's love, his covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirement of duty. This is when we see the word has said in the, in the Hebrew language. And in the New Testament, we have a few words. We have the word phileo, which is a brotherly love. It's a brotherly affection towards each other. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, where they get brotherly love, and then we have the love of God, which is that agape love, which is that, it's, it's the same almost as that chesed love, it's that, that faithful love, that, that gracious love, that loyal love, that committed love. It has true affections, It's a sexual, it's a sacrificial love. And so that's what we're going to look at today is God is love. So God being love, in 1 John 4, 8, this is where we get this, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now this is God's nature. This is God's essence. This is who God is. He is love. He embodies it. The only reason we love is because He loves us. And so we see that he is love. And we can get descriptions of this love from his attributes, actually, right? So we can look at God is self existent. So that means God's love never had a beginning. God is eternal. So his love has no end. God is holy. So his love is absolutely pure and undefiled and spotless. God is immense so his love is incomprehensible. It's vast. It's bottomless. God is omnipotent, so his love strengthens us daily. So it's just not a fuzzy feeling, but it's who he is. It's his character. So not only is God love, but God is self-loving. Now this isn't a way that, oh, that he's in love with his self, but it's this self-loving that within the triune God, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and within there is perfect love. Before anything was created, before the foundations of the world, before anything existed, there was this perfect love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about this, And also in John 1.18, we see the apostles say, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's the Son, He has made Him known. So this Father's side, that Jesus is at the Father's side, it doesn't mean that He's just standing at the Father's side, but it's this, this intimacy. It's as if the Son had His head on the Father's bosom, laying His head on His chest. It's this intimateness, it's this closeness that they have. Because there's love within the triune God. John 17, 24, in in Jesus' prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundations of the world. So we see this love before the foundations of the world. Jesus demonstrates this love by his obedience to the Father, by his obedience. In John ten seventeen, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. His obedience in going to the cross. In John 14, 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And in John 15, 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, abide in my love, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus demonstrates in his obedience that love. It's the same for us. Why are we obedient? Our drive to be obedient would be because we love the Father, because the Father has loved us. We are accepted in the beloved. We are loved fully and completely. Be obedient out of a heart of love to the Father. Out of that heart of love. Jesus also, he acknowledges this love in John 17, 23. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And in 26 of the same chapter, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine that's what Jesus prays for? That the love that the Father has for him, that is in him, that Jesus prays that that same love would be in us. The Father's love in us. Wow, that is absolutely amazing, and it's astonishing that Jesus prays that we would have that kind of love, that loyal, committed love to one another, to one another. God's love is also uninfluenced. His love is uninfluenced, meaning that oftentimes when we love a person or we love an object, it's influenced, right? There's something lovely about that person or there's something lovely about that object that we love, that we're attracted to. Well, look at it this way. We were sinners. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses, and yet God has loved us. Why? What was in us that he loved? Nothing. But yet he chose to love us. This is what he does. He loves the unlovely. Does that describe our lives? Do we love the unlovely? See, it's real easy to love somebody who loves you back. But do you love your enemies? Do you pray for those who persecute you? See, this is genuine love. This is godly love because that's what God did. God loved us. He sent Christ to die for us when we were his enemies, when we were shaking our fists at him. That's how marvelous, how matchless This love is. It's uninfluenced. We see that it's uninfluenced as God in choosing Israel in Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It was his love that redeemed Israel. It was his love that chose Israel. God did not love because we loved him first. It wasn't like we woke up one morning and said, oh man, Lord, I love you. That did not happen. And so then God looked down on you and said, okay, well, since you love me now, I'll love you. No, the very fact that we sit there and say, God, I love you. You are my joy. You are my desire. I love to see your splendor and your glory is because John four 19, 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. That is why we love him. God's love is uninfluenced. He loves the unlovely. Wow. Tremendous, tremendous. God's love is infinite because his character is infinite. We are finite. So our love is finite. Our love has an end. My love has an end with Jenny. One of us is going to die. There comes an end, but God's love is infinite infinite it is infinite since god is infinite his love is without limits paul tells us that as he prays for the ephesians in ephesians 3 so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that we may be able to comprehend these dimensions. But these dimensions we can't comprehend because Christ is infinite; He is not finite; He is not constrained. So, our His love for us is not the same; it's not constrained. It doesn't have a. What am I thinking? It, It doesn't have walls. It doesn't have walls. We can't comprehend the height and the depth and the the length and the breadth of the love of Christ because we can't comprehend His infiniteness. So His love for us is infinite. And if His love for us is infinite, then it's great. Ephesians 2, 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us made us alive. It is great. It's large. It's abundant. This word great is largely abundant, plenty. We can never exhaust the love of God because He is infinite. Do we grab that? Do we get that? That His grace is infinite, His mercy is infinite, His love is infinite, His power, His wisdom is infinite. His holiness is infinite. It can never be exhausted. There can never be a time that God says, no, I won't listen to you. We can never exhaust who He is because He is infinite. His love for us is from everlasting to everlasting. Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. There I have continued my faithfulness to you. His love is steadfast. His love is steadfast. Romans 8, and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things that come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His love is so steadfast, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from it. And not only is His love steadfast, but it endures forever. When we look at Psalm one thirty six one, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then the next 25 verses... Talk about the same thing. Angela, I didn't have that in there. Talk about the same thing. His love endures forever. As the psalmist talks about this this redemption out of slavery from Egypt, he gives a little thing and then he says, The Lord's steadfast love endures forever. His love endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. 26 times alone in Psalm 136. We get the picture. His love is steadfast. It endures forever. God's love is compassionate. His love for you and I has compassion. Moses, in the Hebrew, the word that Moses uses is uh, raham for the word compassion. It is to love deeply, to have tender affections it's that deep-seated that deep-rooted love it's his compassionate love for you and i sinners that's what it is moses writes about it in exodus 33:19 when he says, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This word mercy is translated compassion. Other versions, your New American Standard Bible, will have the word compassion there. He will have compassion on whom he has compassion. Imagine that he will love deeply with tender affections. His people. It's not an on-the-surface love, brothers and sisters. When we hear God say, I love you, it is a deep, compassionate love for us. And it's not even a love that we can compare with our spouses because it goes deeper than that. I'm not even sure there's an example that we could come up with. And all of what I'm doing is just giving us brushstrokes of how God demonstrates his love, of how he demonstrates it. It's a compassionate love. Deuteronomy 33, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy or compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And we see this translated in the New Testament too, that God's compassion is there, right? God's compassion is there. But we see that his compassion is great. In Nehemiah 19, you in your great mercies or compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud, to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. And then in Lamentations 3.22, Jeremiah says, this steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies or his compassions never come to an end. Never come to an end. In, in the New Testament, the Greek word is, <laughs> you guys are going to laugh at me because I can't say them. splanchna." So this refers to the inner parts of the body, refers to our inner parts, especially the intestines or the bowels. Right? The bowels are the bowels of our body. Could also refer to the liver, the lungs, and the heart. But figuratively, the word is used to show deeply felt emotions towards those who find themselves in dire need. Let me repeat that. Figuratively, the word is used to show deeply felt emotions towards towards those who find themselves in dire need, to feel something in the pit of your stomach. We've all had that, right? Those gut feelings in the pit of our stomachs. This is the word compassion. When referring to God, it is his genuine love for those and his genuine compassion for those who are perishing in the destructiveness of their sin. It's that Deep, felt love. Deep in the bowels. That pit in your stomach. It's God's genuine compassion for us that are perishing. Jesus had this compassion in Mark six thirty four When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. It's the same word. He had this deep pit in his stomach, into the depths of his bowels. Compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You guys should understand a sheep without a shepherd. Of all people, you guys should understand that. Because your shepherd went home. Right? But as I said before, the Lord left you two shepherds that were here. But you weren't sheep wandering. But Jesus saw them as these sheep wandering without a shepherd. And he had this compassion. He had this love. He tells us in James, James tells us in 5.11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is who he is. God's love is compassionate. It is deep in the bowels of who He is. So God's love is not only compassionate, but it's affectionate. And we understand affections. We're people that love to have affection, right? We, 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 we have affection for each other, right? We're people that like touch. Some like touch, some might not. But we like touch. We, we have genuine affections for each other. And so God has genuine affections for us. He delights in his people. He has a, 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 a delightfulness about his people that he delights in them. In De- Deuteronomy 39, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you. As he took delight in your fathers, there's this delight that he has in Isaiah 62:4. You shall no more be, <coughs> excuse me. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. This delight, you shall be called my delight. Gentlemen, isn't that how we view our wives sometimes? I'm saying sometimes, because we're frail, right? That our, 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 our bride is our delight. I delight to be with my bride. There's this joy in my heart to be with my bride. We delight in her. And this is what God is saying. He delights in that. When we spend time with him, there's a delight that he does. He also rejoices over his people. There's rejoicing, there's praise. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and you as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. So shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah 32, 41. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in the land of faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Zephaniah three seventeen. The Lord your God is in your midst. Listen, this is now. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud. can you imagine that brothers and sisters God exalts over you and I his blood bought bride with loud singing he does not sing marvelous matchless wonderful grace he doesn't sing that way he exalts over us. He rejoices over his bride that he is redeemed by his blood and he exalts over you and I with loud singing. How much greater should our praise for him be? Don't worry, brothers and sisters, about the person sitting next to you. You praise and worship God with all of your heart. My friend sent me back a, a video from Zambia, and it's a video, I wish I would have brought it and put it on here, of these men in Zambia worshiping. And it's, it, he told me on the phone that it brought tears to his eyes because when they talk about the power of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, these men, their eyes are closed and their arms are doing this, the power of the Lord. We sing and we talk about the power of the Lord and we're like, oh, the power of the Lord. But these men were worshiping. Their hands were raised. They were lifted high. The Bible tells us to raise our hands, to lift our voices to who he is. We should exalt over him because he exalts over us because we are a loved people. And I'm the one that's guilty of it. You do not see me over here lifting my hands up. Oftentimes I'm like patting my foot, but then Jenny will hit me because I'll be offbeat like you're offbeat, you know so so I am guilty of this too I'm guilty of this too but brothers and sisters when we sing and we sing praises if your heart is feeling like you need to just lift your hands lift your hands don't worry I know that none of us are really charismatic or speaking in tongues or being slain in the spirit but lift our hands Lift our hands and worship to him because he rejoices over us. We see this two times in the New Testament in parables. Jesus talks about the lost sheep in Luke 15, 1 through 7 and he talks about the prodigal son in Luke 15, 5. You know, the rest of the way way down. And in Luke 15, 5, he says this. And when he had found it, This is the lost sheep. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The heavens rejoice when we come to repentance. The one that comes to repentance It doesn't have to be a Billy Graham crusade where thousands come down. The heavens rejoice over one that comes to repentance. In the prodigal son, we know the story, right? The the son comes, says, I want my inheritance, goes out, blows it, and then he's coming back. Listen to the father's response as he comes back in Luke 15, 22 and 23. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Not just some ordinary robe, but the best robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. And shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Because the prodigal has come home. A rejoicing. The Father's love, his compassion, his affections. It was the best of the Son that came home. The best. God's love is not only compassionate. It's not only affectionate, but it's disciplinary. God's love is disciplinary. And we see this in Proverbs. All through Proverbs, Proverbs is Solomon saying, all those things. my son, listen to my words, right? Don't be a, a fool to your mother, but listen to my words. And in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, this is what Solomon says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. As parents, we've done that, right? We swat our kid on the butt or we ground (coughs) them or we do some kind of disciplinary action. Why do we do that? Not because we hate them, but because we love them. The Bible actually tells us, and I didn't look up the verses, that the one who does not reprove their son actually hates them. So if you withhold discipline from your child, you actually hate your child. Boy, that's kind of changed nowadays, hasn't it? We live in a world now that if you discipline your child, you get turned in because obviously you hate your child. But nobody goes up to a child who's been disciplined and looks at him and says, boy, your parents really must love you. But that's what God does. We receive discipline when we get out of line. He loves us enough to bring us back in the line. That's what he'll do. He'll break the leg of the sheep to bring them back in the line. That's what the shepherd would do when the the sheep got off his way. He would go, he would break the leg, but then he would carry the sheep. There was disciplinary actions for being out of line. God does the same thing with us, but it's because he loves us. Listen to Hebrews 12, 5 through 10. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son <coughs> whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The very fact that God disciplines you and I goes to show that we are not illegitimate. But that we are his children. Besides this, we have we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for as short times as it seemed best to them. But the but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. That is why we are disciplined, that we may share His holiness. God is conforming us into the image of Christ. So his love for us is disciplinarian. And finally, his love for us is sacrificial. God's love for us is sacrificial. This is a love that gives at great personal cost. It seeks the highest good of the one who is loved. Do we understand that? It is a love that gives the greatest personal cost and it is a love for the highest good Of the one who is loved. And God puts this love on display. And he demonstrates this love towards us. In Jesus Christ. It is sacrificial. The sacrificial giving of his son. This was a love that is for the good of us. It was the highest good. It was the greatest personal cost to God was this love, this sacrificial love. A.W. Pink writes this, Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love his people. Calvary is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you are tempted to doubt the love of God, Christian reader, go back to Calvary. I love that. He's simply saying, if you don't think God loves you, go back to the cross. Look at the cross. It is the pinnacle. It is the highest good. It is the greatest cost of God's love for you and I is the cross. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love. He demonstrates his love. He puts his love on glorious display in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You want to see the pinnacle of God's glory? You want to see the pinnacle of God's holiness? You want to see all of His attributes wrapped up into one place? It's the cross. And they are put on glorious display. All of His splendor, all of His glory, all of His majesty on the cross. All of His love, all of His mercy on the cross. Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's saying, you are going to see how great a love I have for you because I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to be nailed to that cross and I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to raise three days later and you guys are all going to go preach this gospel and I'm going to save many, because I lay down my life for my bride. This is sacrificial love. Gentlemen, we talked about this in Ephesians chapter 6. This is the sacrificial love we are to have for our bride. This very love, this same sacrificial love, we are to be the ones who give at great personal cost for our brides. We are to ultimately look at their highest good and what is good for them. Because we love them and because God loved us and that's what he has done. And when we love this way, we put him on display. This is the love that God has. Stephen Lossing puts it this way. In the midst of our busy lives, let us never lose sight of God's constant care for us. His love never stops giving to meet our needs. He is always going ahead of us to prepare the way. He comes behind us to protect us. He's under us to support us. He's beside us to encourage us. He is in us to strengthen us. We are forever immersed in the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his great and glorious love. And we get to experience this now as we come to communion. As we look at the communion table, we see this great and glorious love in displayed in the Lord's death and our remembrance of Him. We see this great love. We see His affections, His compassion, all wrapped up in this one simple sacrament that we get to take. So brothers and sisters, as we come to the table, Check your hearts. Confess any sin. And if you sit here and you're not a believer, don't take it. It's not for you. Or if you sit here and you have something against your brother or your sister, don't take it. Let it go by. The Bible says that we are to leave our gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to our brothers. But if your heart is pure God has cleansed your heart. You're trusting in him for your salvation. This is for us. Let us come together, brothers and sisters, and rejoice in the death of Jesus Christ for us. In his body that hung on that cross, and his blood that was spilt for us. Let us rejoice in that. So as the men come forward, let us take a few minutes, pray, confess any sin, before we take this make sure your conscience is clear